And we are live. Hello, everyone. Yeah. Hello. Comment, if you comment, we'll be able to see your comments. Yeah, well, we're a little early, so people may not have jumped on yet. We're about 12 minutes before actual start time, so people can stroll in as if we're at the actual bar and having a drink. Yes, have a drink. I yeah. know I'd love to have a drink. I'm having a drink. When I have a drink, my mouth goes dry. I did that the first time I ever read. I'm yeah, dry it goes dry. This is a test, actually, I, to see if I have heart, if I get that horrible acid reflux, which I've been getting from wine. We'll see if beer affects me that way. Hopefully, oh, I, I just took two two uh, tums. I may end up taking tums. We'll see how this works. If how because I was figuring I'd be never mind. <laughs> Matt, what are you doing? Mike, tell the world. That's all you need is me in the middle of the reading to belch. That would be just perfect. Matt, what are you drinking? I'm drinking um, Restay Restay Tropical. It is oh, a. I hate cans, though. Doesn't it taste like a can? No. Oh. No, it's a milkshake style IPA brewed with milk. What does milkshake style mean? I'm yeah. not exactly sure. It says milk, sugar, vanilla, passion fruit, papaya, mango, golden <laughs> berry, and vanilla hops. That's okay. a beer. And what it, does it taste like? It tastes very fruity. It tastes like it's, how do I describe it? It's almost like a, um, a smoothie, but alcoholic, but it's not that thick. So. I <laughs> and what time is it for you, Liz? What time is it for you? It's uh, almost one o'clock in the afternoon. I have a drink. You can have a drink. No, no, no. Yeah, drinking water. I dropped some acid, so I'll be. Oh, I'll be yeah, there you go. Uh, it, it'll yeah. start hitting right it's around. I considered a little THC as well, but then I decided <laughs> I better not. Yeah. Yeah. For after the reading. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm drinking water. Yeah, if I start drinking before the readings, I kind of get like, I mean, I do. I mean, it, in person. When I'm there, it's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have had that, you know, before we started. No, I, I can't drink if I'm reading. I ha I save it no. for afterwards. Yeah. As much as I'd love to. I usually restrict myself to one drink before and then as many after. <laughs> I'm eating dinner after. I had a late lunch, though. Okay. Matthew Cope joins us. Hello, Matthew. He says hello. Oh, jeez. It's my friend. Oh. Okay. Yeah. I have burrata and tomatoes waiting for me. That sounds Mike, good. I, uh, I, uh, Mike Liveling, I, um, I texted Paul Whitcover to tell him, um, but I don't know if he will. So better. Anyway, he's in Brooklyn. He should. Hi, Amy. Hi, Amy. Hi, Amy. I can't see who's there. Congrats on the Click on comments and you'll see it. Oh, I see. Okay. I'm not getting it in the. Where's the comments? Next to um, right. Right right, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm in the private chat. Yeah, go to comment. Hey, hi, Amy. Thank you. Now I can see. Right. We already have 15 people on, and it's, you know, we're not even, not even at seven. We're 10 minutes up. You know, just seeing that my friend Matthew was there, I'm yeah. ready to. Yes. I, I just you want to, yeah. You can say hello to him. No Any flops, he's never going to let me forget this. He'll, he'll be, uh, Hey, Elizabeth, did you live in New York at one time? No, I grew up um, in Yonkers. Which is where, where I Ellen grew up, which is how Ellen and I 
when we first met, not in Yonkers, but we bonded over the fact that we were both from Yonkers. So I grew up around New York, but I didn't grow up in the city. Was it the um, same time? We did you grow? She's younger than I am. That's no, I I, uh, I went to different high school. We yeah, we went to different high schools, but we had a shared love of candy, <laughs> candy and comic book Yonkers. So I was always I was always in the city a lot because because we were in the you know area, not far Hello, away. Christine, hey, do you have a favorite candy? <clears throat> oh I my god, I like strawberry Twizzlers. I really? like the original one. I don't oh, like. I prefer black. I like many candies. I, I like, like Skittles. I, that's Skittles or, or Skittles. Yeah. I like um, gummy things, sour gummy things. Mm. I like. Um, I like score bars. I love candy. I love all candy. My what shoe leather, which is apricot flat. I don't mm -hmm. know what leather. It's called shoe leather. You know, you know what I mean, right? Fruit leather, yeah. You call it shoe leather, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would bring, um, what's it called? Rock candy, which is goddamn. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Rock candy and sunflower seeds and sunshine. And then exists in the world. Nerve. You ever have nerves? Do they still make sense? No. And I have the last of it. I have I've been saving it. <laughs> how many years old is it? So I think it sends old. It doesn't matter how old it is. It's just sends sends are forever, yeah. Yeah, they exactly they last forever. Yeah, right. So I I should have some. I should have a little bit. My sister loves it. She bought it whenever she could, she'd buy it up, but it's gone. Yeah, like this is going to be obscure. Have you guys ever had? We used to call it Chinese fortune gum, and the ice cream truck would come by, and it would like it was like five cents for a little stick of gum. It was orange, and you open it up, and there was a fortune inside, but it was Chinese, and no one could read it. But, but it was it we call it Chinese fortune gum. Was that gum? Yeah, it was gum, and it like the it was like the most delicious flavor for like fifteen seconds. And then, and then it was just you were just. Well, for a while, there was gum that would had liquid stuff inside of it. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, remember. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. I think that there was candy cigarettes, but there was also candy cigarettes that were gum. Yeah, like, just they, they fake cigarettes. Didn't they give off? Smoke? They had like uh, powdered sugar that if you powdered sugar, yeah. yeah. That was really well, weird. Not in my time, I never had those. I just I like had candies that look like cigarettes. I like, I like a lot of candies. We just smoke like cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have to say hi to my daughter, Lindsay. Hi, Lindsay. Amy, hi. I'm drinking. I have um, a really nice um, uh, chocolate stout that I've been drinking, although I think I may not be drinking any more of it. I think I've had enough. <laughs> now I'm drinking iced tea. So I think my son Tristan is out there. Hi, Tristan, if you're there. He's in New York. Uh, hi, Tr Tristan, if you're here, say hello. I want to say, see, see you. <laughs> Tristan. <laughs> He's in Brooklyn. Callie can't do it because she that would interfere with the live stream. But she's oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Is Lindsay a daughter? Yeah. She's my middle one with her two uh, have. sons, Zachary and Benjamin. Oh. Are they all there? Well, they're here, yeah. And then oh. I see uh, Christine is here with Will. Okay, who are they? That's uh, my agent. Oh, and no. Oh, oh, Christine. Hi, Paul. Hello. 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 Hello.
The Arrowhead folks. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Hello, everybody. I'm sure the burger's going to eat on me. I'm sure in the middle of this reading, that burger is going to hit me big time. I can feel <laughs> it now. Well, I think and that's it was a beyond burger. It wasn't even a real burger. Oh, no. It was, yeah. it was a pecan burger? Hey, Bill. Hey, Bill. Hi, Bill. Hey, Bill. Bill wrote me today to wish me luck, told me to break a leg. Will or Bill? Bill Bill Shun. Well, with, with live streaming, everyone's sitting, so it's like breaking an arm, I guess. Makes more sense. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I met, I met Bill at a KGB meeting. The first time I ever went to the KGB, I met Bill there. He read ice cream. I don't know about that. Amy said I make an ice cream stout float. Do you think that would work? I know. That's a great idea. Oh, that's good. My friend, I can throw some coffee Stout beer. Beer. from Sorry, he makes ice cream from stout. It's delicious. Ooh, that sounds good. Yeah. No, it doesn't. Who makes an ice cream stout? Scott Andrews, he makes ice cream from stout beer. Wow. Oh, hey, Kat. My what? sister's out there. Oh, and Amy's <laughs> drinking a, a strawberry mojito. I love mojitos. Oh, like we, got, we got 30 viewers. Hey, We're getting up there. Hey, Dave, Mercurio. I'm going to go get a Tums. <laughs> I wonder if anybody from Trenton has uh, tuned in here. Yeah. If anybody from Trenton is out there, let me know. I'll write back. So yeah, everybody, the world everybody sound off. Where, where's everybody uh, watching from? Like... Uh, with the live stream, we're trying to see who who's going to break the uh, tonight's record for the uh, furthest from New York. Well, probably Liz, because you're in Hawaii, right? Yeah. But you know, you never know. We had uh, Switzerland before, obviously with uh, uh, Ben Rosenbaum, and then uh, we had Israel. What else we had? We had uh, I think we had France. Yeah. Every everybody uh, chime in. Where where are you coming from? It's going to take a second because I think they're, the live stream is probably like a little delayed, like maybe 30 seconds or so. But uh, Michael, you're in Canada. Yep. Not that far from New York, though. No, no. It's, a, it's like a really short flight from Toronto to, to New York. No, Montreal. Oh, Montreal. I'm sorry. Yeah. Have you been here? Have you been to Montreal, Matt? I have been to Montreal, but it's been it's well, been many years. Montreal, we figured out next year. It's been many years. Yeah. Montreal, there you go. My sister's Hi, there's another in Montreal. All right. <laughs> Melbourne. All right. There we go. Australia. Wow. I think wow. that might that may be the farthest so far. That may be the farthest. I I go by the length of the flight. I think I think Australia's further than Hawaii by, by quite a bit. So, yeah. so what time is it, Max, in Australia right now for you? I bet it is, eight, it is. 9 a.m. in the morning, I bet. Is it, yeah, it's really early in the morning. Is it drinking time there yet? <laughs> David is watching from the hinterlands of the Bronx. Uh, Milford, Pennsylvania. Milford, Pennsylvania, yeah. Vaughn is watching from... Matamoros, Pennsylvania. 9 a.m. I was right. Yeah. Kansas. Hello, Kansas. Dodge Kansas. Well, I just a call last night at the DNC. <laughs> yeah. Except we don't get to see everybody's costumes. Yeah. So it's it's right on the nose, 7, 7 p.m. 
And uh, so if you're just tuning in, you're watching the Fantastic Fiction at KGB Reading Series. We're going to get started in just a few minutes, but we're just waiting for people to quote unquote trickle into the to the bar. And um, yeah. So yeah. we got anxiety mounts. Oh, people pile up here. The anxiety keeps going up with every new edition. Oh, I know. Imagine all of them naked. Hi, Elizabeth. And Sean coming Boston Spa. I knew Spa, rather. I knew people used to go there for vacation, Boston Spa. Oh, that's uh, Margie, my daughter. Boston Spa. Sean, company? That's my son-in-law. Oh, cool. Hi. <laughs> Big fans of Hollywood <laughs> Northern. Family, they're all fans. Okay, good. <laughs> Hi, Sean. Hi, Margie. Hi, uh, Molly and uh, Tally. Oh, I forgot. I can mute my. I can mute myself, right? <laughs> I forget. I was doing that. I was doing. I was coughing actually during my panel in Australia, and in New Zealand, and they was and finally after coughing a few times, they said, "Mute yourself." I said, "Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't even think of it." The bartender's attention. No, Chris, I'm sorry. You can't get the bartender's attention. Ontario. <laughs> uh, that's my niece. Hi, Dina. <laughs> My sister can't figure out how to comment, so. You need to be signed into a, um, a Google account. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes, I was drinking Bill, Sean. I was drinking. Yeah, Bill, just go behind the bar and make yourself a drink. Bill is drinking? I, that's a shock. He's drinking. I, I can't believe that. Who? Bill, Sean. Yeah. Why? Oh, no. Well, it doesn't mean he's making an alcoholic drink. Oh, it doesn't mean that. It absolutely means that, Ellen. <laughs> well, I made my first iced tea that's not Earl Grey. I made, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's like a Christmas tea I decided for a change for iced tea. It's like got cloves in it and stuff. It's interesting. For you bought it or you made it? Well, I had the tea leaves and I just made it. Oh, okay. Oh, nice tea. Every few days. Michael is definitely right. About what? Hi, Luke. Michael. Hey, Liz. Oh, that's cool. Riverview in Chicago. Oh, is that what you meant? Oh. I, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's cool. You may notice we're not seeing the comments right away, so because there's a, a little delay in the in the stream. Uh, uh, from what we see uh, and then from what everyone else sees. Oh, I see. Okay. Not that long, but just enough. Ah, um, uh, okay. Bill and China. Oh, Bill Shun and China Mayville, I assume. Uh -huh. They were my first. second KGB experience yeah. with Luke Hannafin. Yeah, I was I was not um, there that that night. I don't think I was running the series at that point either. I remember China, who was actually a really good reader, read the, one of the most boring things he could read in his book. <laughs> I mean, it's such a, which it was one of his early novels and it was like, it's a great novel. And it's like, why did you pick that? Totally no action whatsoever. Oh, Perdido Street Station. Oh, yes, God. oh no, that's what I'm doing tonight. Oh, thank you so much for that, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Something that happens. You have to have action. This is just, this is a nightmare coming true. I, I really can't. I'm so great. It'll be great. It'll be great. I think I'm going to read King of Shards, Matt. You're gonna read, read my book. That's a, all right. That's a good book, Matt. Thank you. Scar, Teresa. We, we want to hear your book. We want to hear your book, Michael. 
I don't know who it was. The Scar an early one of his? Was that his second novel? The scar, he uh, an early one. Station, then the Scar, and then yeah. I forgot what the third one was called. Yeah, uh, Teresa, uh, I don't remember. Something with the train. Oh yeah. Someone will comment and let us know. Oh, it was the Scar. Uh, yeah. yeah. Luke said he just finished Curious Toys, Liz. I don't know. If yeah, you know. that's cool. I hope you liked it, especially if you're by Riverview. Yes, I remember the bar was packed. King Rat was first, right? Okay, and then Perdido. Yeah. King Rat was was very different from his later novels, though. Yeah, like, yeah. I can't read them. I've tried reading them several times, and I haven't been able to. Iron Council was the third. It was before Iron Council. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, no, I mean it was his fourth novel, but the third in the um. Oh, is universe related? Yeah, they were like the same universe. East York, wow, okay. Oh, that's another, That's my nephew now. Hi, Sean. He's in England? No, he, he, Toronto. Oh, oh. <laughs> it's a suburb. Shire in East York. Oh. Hello, Sean from East York. Sean and Dina are uh, brother and sister. Ah. Well, we're all related if you go back far enough. Oh, thanks, Teresa. <laughs> Okay, what do we got here? Another five minutes. Yeah. I'm my nieces and nephews. <laughs> Tell them to represent. Well, we got about 50 live people watching now. <clears throat> Good. Hi, nice, nice live crowd. Um, Thanks for that uh, comment, Matthew. I, I really appreciate it. Um, <laughs> it's at least 400, 500 at this point. <laughs> no, you'll be, you'll be, you'll be good, Michael. Uh, this is a. Yes, I'm prepared now. Thank you. This is a, This is always a good crowd, even when we're at the bar. Uh, it's always a nice, warm crowd. Um, yeah. So if you're just tuning in, you, this is fantastic fiction at KGB reading series. We're going to get started in just about five minutes um, with Elizabeth Hand and Michael Liebling. Uh, so we just we'd like to wait till like maybe seven ten p.m. Eastern time, just for people to trickle in. Uh, so we'll get started soon. That looks kind of spooky if I do this, huh? It does. iPad yeah. light Oh, that's cool. Well, that's good. Cool. That's off the background light. Michael. I was reading about ghosts. That would be ghost stories, yeah. Oh, thank you, Brian. Hey, Brian Lingard. <laughs> Brian says he just finished reading The Amazing Wilding Hall. Yeah, thanks, Brian. I want to read Curious Toys. I, I the title it. Well, you, yeah, it, it kind of dovetails with your book, Mike, because they're both uh, have to do with the early film industry, oh, silent yeah. film. So, how many dead people? We don't know, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> many multitudes. Okay, I have to do a shout out to my uh, granddaughter Sadie now. You see Carrie Libling at the bottom there. Hi, Sadie. Oh. I better clean up my text immediately. <laughs> How old is she? I think she's nine. It's hard to keep track. I mean, uh, grandchildren are coming out of our ears by now. So uh, I'm not sure. Uh, you're nine, right, Sadie? Uh, confirm that, Carrie. I usually ask my wife to tell me how old everybody is, including my daughters. She's nine. Yes, I knew that. <laughs> so um, if this is your first time watching, we do a Q&A with the authors after the readings. So definitely if you want to ask them questions, stick around to the end. Um, 
because then then that's where that's where the good the uh really interesting stuff happens obviously the stories are interesting too but we like the question parts as well um okay there's a lot of comments i can't keep up with them all hey loyal family attendance yeah all right what do you say we start? How does that sound? Uh, grandsons are watching too. Better not be anything dirty. Right. <laughs> well, they won't understand it anyway. <laughs> All right. So it's coming up on 7, 10, 7, 9 ish. Sure. Um, yeah. So um, if you're just tuning in or if you've been with us before, welcome. This is a fantastic fiction reading series. Normally it would be at the KGB bar, but because of the uh, pandemic, the bar is shut down so as most of new york city and um ellen and i decided for the safety of everyone and obviously because we couldn't be at the actual bar to to do a live stream and uh it, it's been working out really well we've this is our uh this is our sixth i can't believe we've been doing this six months already oh my god um, we've been isolated kind of yeah yeah so it's like you know the pandemic i'm sure has been stressful for everybody uh, for me, this has been, you know, one of the highlights of my month and uh, of the month. And I, and I hope it's that way for other people as well. People tell me like, oh, you know, it's great to see everybody online or, you know, even if it's just digitally, we, you know, a break from, from the chaos, let's call it. Um, so just a little bit about the, the reading series itself. Um, Fantastic Fiction is a monthly spec fic, speculative fiction reading series. Uh, held on the third Wednesday of every month, normally at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan. Uh, it's hosted by myself, Matthew Kressel, and Ellen Datlow. Um, the series was started by Terry Bisson and Alice Turner um, in the late 90s, uh, attempting to bring together mainstream writers with writers of speculative fiction um, in order to show, in Alice Turner's words, that at a certain level, they were plowing exactly the same field. Uh, in the spring of 2000, Ellen Datlow took over for Alice Turner, and in August 2002, Gavin J. Grant, who is the current co-publisher of Smallville Press, uh, stepped in for Terry Bisson when he moved to California, and me, Matthew Kressel, stepped in for Gavin in April of 2008. We have a mailing list. We don't spam. We just send out a few emails every month to remind you of the readings, the upcoming readings. Uh, that is, our website is KGB fantasticfiction.org. Um, so the bar itself, uh, oh, before I uh, continue, um, like I said, the bar is closed. So uh, they are accepting donations to keep them alive. So the, the KGB bar, I want to tell you a little bit about it because if you haven't been there, and actually I can even do this. I can show you a picture of the bar. Look at that. Um, <laughs> That's, that's the back of the bar. There's a nice little statue of Lenin on the bar. Um, so the, the KGB bar is a Soviet-themed bar on the Lower East Side of Manhattan that used to serve as a speakeasy-style meeting place for Ukrainian socialists during the McCarthy period. Uh, before the virus shut down, uh, the bar was host to liter literary events almost every night of the month. Um, and in 20 years of hosting fantastic fiction, the bar never once charged a cover. It's always free. We usually ask that the audience buy a drink, hard or soft, to support the bar, to keep them going. But since they're closed, we're asking our viewers to support the bar if they can. Um, 
the uh, through Fundly. And yes, there's a link on the screen there. So if you can do that, that would be great. And the owner, Dennis Wojcik, promises to give a portion of all proceeds to the bartenders. Uh, hello, Dan, and hello, Seiji, our regular bartenders. If you are watching, we miss you, and we hope to see you again soon. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. So tonight's readers, as I said, are uh, Elizabeth Hand and Michael Liebling. So uh, welcome to you both. We're excited to have you uh, reading tonight. This is this is uh, going to be fun. Um, before we get to our readers, um, because of the um, the opportunities that doing a live stream gives us, we could have guests who are not going to be in New York. You know. Um, so now we have Liz Hand, who's joining us all the way from Hawaii, and Michael, who's joining us from a town outside of Montreal, Canada. So um, we're excited for that. And then we also have, as some of you have seen earlier, we have uh, people watching from uh, as far away as uh, Melbourne, Australia. So uh, welcome to everybody. Uh, we're really happy to have you. Uh, so we're, we're, um, we've reached out to authors um, who might not have been able to come to the series had it been at the actual bar. So uh, next month we have uh, September 16th, we have Livia Llewellyn and Craig L. Gidney. October 21st, we have Joe Hill and Laird Barron. November 18th, William Gibson and Kat Rambo. And December 16th, Priya Sharma and Justin Key. So um, we hope that you will continue to tune in. We're planning right now to continue doing a live stream at least until December. Um, we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, <clears throat> after that, I would like to set up, if we if we're, the bar opens up and we go back there, I'd like to just do an actual live stream. I'll just put my camera on the bar or something and, and film it live. It won't be as fancy like this with all the uh, titles and colors and stuff, but uh, yeah, you can, people will be able to join us. Oh, and, and um, you know, even if even before the pandemic, we have a podcast. So if you go to the website, kgbfantasticfiction.org, and the URL is on the screen there, um, you can go and click on the link for our podcast, and you can listen to the readings going back to, I think it's 2015. So a, a good five years of readings, um, which is a really nice archive. There's some great stuff there. All right. So uh, like I said before, stick around. After the readings, we're gonna do a Q&A with both authors. So don't sign off, stay for a while. Uh, our first reader is gonna be Michael Liebling. Michael is a World Fantasy Award nominated author whose short fiction has appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Asimov Science Fiction, Realms of Fantasy, Amazing Stories, and many others. His debut novel, Hollywood North, a novel in six reels, was published in 2019. Michael is the father of three daughters and, live, and lives on Montreal's West Island with his wife, Pat, and a big black dog named Piper. Here's Michael. Oh yeah, here I am. Okay, uh, so I will be reading from my novel, Hollywood North, a novel in six reels. It was originally published in 2019 by Chi Zine and uh, fortunately has been relaunched recently by Open Road Media. And that is the cover. I don't have a, an actual book in hand yet, unfortunately. 
Hollywood North is a uh, coming of age fantasy noir with elements of mystery and horror. And it is, as they say, based on true events. One last note, uh, the text has been edited for this reading. Um, you won't notice though, unless you've read the book. Chapter one, 1988, and I was on the 310 to Yuma with Jack, a girl, and Frankie Lane. The lawyer didn't need to ask me twice. Any reason to get out of Winnipeg in January was reason enough, even if it sent me home. It'll be worth your while, the lawyer said. By then, I guess, curiosity awaited my fear, and my death instinct had kicked in. The train was rolling as I clambered into the car, my bag thrust out front as I cast about for a window seat. Last aboard, my odds were slim. I was halfway down the aisle before Jack tripped me up, pulled what I'd come to call his Orson Welles entrance, like Harry Lyme in The Third Man. A stray cat at his wingtips, a slash of light to reveal the mischief in his eyes. Unexpected, only if you've never seen a Wells picture or don't know Jack about Jack. My old pal got right to it, picked up as if nothing had changed between us. Best kid without a dad movie, he said. The day the earth stood still or the seven faces of Dr. Lau. Jack, he could find me anywhere. Hottest TV mom, then, he said. Donna Reed or June Lockhart? He was good at that. Finding, I mean. You know how it is. Everybody has people inside their heads, drop-ins, slugs, and residents. Thoughts of home brought Jack to mind. Even when he wasn't with me, he was with me. And I wager he'd have said the same of me. But this was my end of the story. His entrance was premature. I swung my bag right through him and forged onto the rear of the car, the four seats facing. A woman had beaten me to it, her space staked out, her knee-high leather boots stowed by the heater, her feet folded under her, taking advantage of the seat adjacent. I apologized for my invasion. Uh-huh, she said, dragged her briefcase from my newly claimed territory, the bench opposite, and returned to the paperback tucked close to chin, Women Who Love Too Much by Robin Norwood. She was younger than me, though not by much, 33, 34, business professional sporty, petite, ex-figure skater relegated to coaching, a fantasy I could run with, and I did. My thing for women on trains goes back to Frankie Lane and 310 to Yuma, not the theme he sang for the movie, but the radio version where Frankie falls hard for this girl with golden hair and then he moans and whines the whole song through because she exits the train without a peep between them, even as her eyes bid him a sad goodbye. Good singer, that Frankie, and thick as a rump roast. The train was stopped. I wasn't sure where we were or how long I'd been dozing. Nothing but moonlit snow on either side of Canada's acclaimed middle of nowhere. My traveling companion glanced up from her book, sympathized with my confusion. They're, um, they're clearing drifts from the tracks again, she said. Last I heard we'll be a half day late into Toronto. I checked my watch, feigned like-minded annoyance. 
She had places to be and zero time to waste. And I wondered why the heck she'd taken the train, least of all the entire stretch and coach. It was like she'd read my mind. I, I, I was on Air Canada Flight 797, she said, assessing my degree of cluelessness before expanding. The plane that caught fire a few years back, June 2nd, 1983, Dallas, Montreal. Oh, oh yeah, of course, I said. In truth, I did and mostly didn't. I mean, how many accidents and disasters is one person obligated to remember anyhow? I was full up, thank you very much. We, we had to make an emergency landing in Cincinnati. 18 of us got out, but 23, it was horrific, awful. You, you can't imagine. Tears loomed. She lowered her head, hugged herself till the impulse passed. I, I can't believe it's coming up on five years. I, I haven't flown since. Oh yeah, I hate to fly too, I said, as trite as anything I'd ever come out with. I should have been a walking, talking phrase book of commiseration by then, catastrophe in me, our long and special relationship. Mercifully, she let me off the hook. So uh, what's waiting for you in Toronto? She asked. Huh? A rental car and another hundred miles, I told her. I'm headed to Trenton. Trenton, where the Air Force Base is? Yeah, one claim to fame. She was curious. You live there? I used to. But you still have family in the town? Friends? Oh yeah, tons. I lied. She smiled. I love going home, the reminiscing and all. I nodded as if I knew where she was coming from, then strummed a hard string. This trip, sad to say, it's, it's for the reading of a will. The chit-chat never lags when you've got puppies, babies, or death to turn to. She was concerned. Oh my, I am so sorry. Someone close? I shook my head. No, not really. Hmm. She dog-eared a page, set her book aside. You make it sound intriguing, like in the movies, and you're heir to an unforeseen fortune, a castle in Scotland or something. <laughs> It's a long story, I told her. Isn't it always, she said, as if she'd heard it all and expected to hear more. And Jack, I guess, had heard enough. He tossed up a card from our collection. Let me see if I can get this on her. Her eyes, the deepest blue of the deepest sea, and to the love-smitten powder monkey, no less unfathomable. Good choice, I thought, and fired back. I'm trying to figure out how to center these here. Little did Captain Snow know the treasure he would come to cherish most awaited him west of Hispaniola, where X marked the spot of a fetching young maiden's heart. Jack would have none of it. I understand, beauty, charm, and plane crash survivor, a woman after your own heart. Too bad she's not in the script this time out. Let her go, Gus. Let her remember you as you are, the distracted loony who blanked mid-conversation and started yammering aloud to himself. She'll tell the story to friends, embellish it in parts, describe you as off your meds and supremely disturbed, but not as disturbed as you really are, and promptly forget she ever had the misfortune to cross your pitiful path. I'm doing you a favor, man. Excuse me? Are, are you speaking to me? She was nervous, nursey, 
like she might whip out a thermometer, a cold compress, a can of mace. Are, are, are you all right? The train lurched. Couplings grumbled down the line. Jack and me, we came up with the TV guide blurb together. Hollywood North, movie, after many years away, a man returns to his boyhood home to claim a mysterious inheritance. I was 36 years old, January of 1988. My future behind me, my past dead ahead. Chapter two. Jack Levin was the boy who found things. When he was eight, a meteorite. When he was nine, a message in a bottle. When he was 10, a gold ring. Jack made the front page of the Trent record every time. Local boy finds meteorite in garden. Local boy finds tragic message in bottle. Local boy finds long lost wedding band. On school days, boiled eggs, toast soldiers, and the newspaper was my breakfast. And my mother kept watch to ensure I digest it all. Don't forget, this is the same breakfast Thomas Edison's mother gave him, she'd say. Mr. Edison in regular rotation with Bell, Einstein, and Walt Disney. On weekends, it would be Rice Krispies in the paper, which happened to be the same breakfast Winston Churchill's mother gave him. Either way, Mom promised, you'll look back on this one day and thank me. I've never stopped looking back. It's the thank you that's been tough. My mother was like most mothers. She believed me to be a better person than I would ever know myself to be. The record stories were homegrown. Fires, Boy Scout profiles, fires, peewee hockey, fires, death notices, fires. I skimmed the pages, bluffed interest with an intensity that swelled mom's heart. Oh, I was good all right. She'd get downright soppy as she gushed to friends about her wonderful son and his passion for the world about him. So much like his dad, you have no idea. In fact, I retain no specifics, save for the life and times of Superman, Beetle Bailey, Mandrake the Magician, and Jack Levin. We were spiritual bookends, Jack and me. He found things, I wanted things. You can tell even now he's going to be a somebody, Mom observed from her post behind my right ear. My, my, my right ear. It was Jack's debut, The Meteorite Story, 1958. My mother's endorsement of Jack was a red flag, of course. Her previous candidates for playmates had hailed from the village of the damned. Eh, I've seen him at school, I said. He's older, second grade. You can learn a lot from older friends. Look at me and Dottie. Mom and Dottie Lang worked at the unemployment insurance offices. They would remain best friends until the day Dottie's body washed up on the rocks below dam number one. Take note, among local pastimes, only hunting, fishing, and arson rank higher than drowning. My mother had it wrong, of course. Jack was already a somebody. From the first photo I saw of him, he struck me as heroic, as if he himself had grabbed the comet's tail, hopped aboard, and chiseled out his prize. It might have been a smile, 
a cryptic quirk suggestive of more daring feats to come. He was squatting, pointing to the spot where the meteorite had been found. Yet I would have bet you a million the photographer had tied him down to get the shot. Jack's unruly hair, a stirring glimpse of anarchy. In a, a stirring glimpse of anarchy in a town torn between Brill Cream and Brush Cut. The town was Trenton, the Ontario Trenton, not the New Jersey one. Look for Rochester on your map, and Trenton is an inch straight up, and a barren speck of chronic self-deception on the north shore of Lake Ontario, toward the western tip of the Bay of Quinty. The inlet, by the way, is as perfect a Z as God has carved. Left to me, it would have been the Bay of Zorro. The Trent River splits the town up the middle. Three bridges now span the gap, two for cars one for rail. There used to be a footbridge too, but it collapsed in 64, killing Jimmy Campbell's mom and her beagle, Walter. Jimmy himself was famously dead eight years by then, his windpipe crushed by the school's monkey bars. The way I see it, the only good part about dying is that you no longer need to be afraid of dying. There's this moment toward the climax of the movie House of Wax, where the heroine Phyllis Kirk, fearing for her life, smashes Vincent Price in the face. Except it's not his face. It's the wax mask he's been hiding behind. And as it shatters, the grisly truth is revealed. The psycho's mug is a flame-broiled eggplant. Trenton is Vincent Price but with an uglier eggplant. Easter weekend, 78, Godzilla dropped in for the night with Hiroshima on his breath. Walk the main street and you'll see the town never did recover. There's a charmless, slap together look to the hole. You can't help but wonder if public tenders are extended only to builders schooled on Lego and then awarded free, free reign to masturbate in brick, aluminum, and plastic. Aesthetics, zoning, heritage protection, afterthoughts, if that. Besides outdoor enthusiasts and firebugs, Trenton is also popular with the British royal family. Queen Elizabeth has turned up a bunch of times. As a kid, I stood by the roadside and waved to her and she waved back, though her hand never moved much, like she had a back scratcher up her sleeve. In 2010, Trenton had a serial killer, the commander of the nearby Air Force Base, no less, a colonel. The guy had even piloted the Queen's plane a few times. The Prime Minister's too. I'm not kidding. You can look it up. The serial killer didn't surprise me, though. I only wondered what took so long. I have wondered the same about a lot thereabouts, from the dark shit that has come to pass to the dark shit that will. These days, the killer colonel pretty much sums up what most people know about Trenton, and this includes many who live there. I don't hold it against them. Nobody knew much in my day either, and those who did weren't talking. I don't blame anyone. Look how long it's taken me to open up. From the beginning of me, I sensed the town would be the end of me. I saw neither streets nor avenues, only dead ends and dead endings. While other kids may do with stamps and coins and baseball cards, me, 
I collected fears. The biggest was that my mother would die and leave me on my own. My father was already dead. When I was four, he slipped in the bathroom of a Texaco station in Oshawa and cracked his head open on the sink. Rumors, though, pointed to the toilet. Cops figuring death by sink, a softer blow for mom and me. On the other hand, orphanhood wasn't entirely without appeal. Rusty on Rin Tin Tin, Corky on Circus Boy, Joey on Fury, that mopey kid from a dog of Flanders. Orphanhood was the best thing to have happened to them. I just didn't have it in me to commit. Maybe if I'd had a dog or a horse or a or baby elephant. Every town has its history. Every town has its secrets. Trenton's secret is its history. I'm gonna read one last chapter and I'm skipping one, this is chapter four actually, and it's called The Obligatory Taxidermy. Dufferin Street School was a demure Georgian beauty. Two stories of quarry stone and priory windows. A mother hen of a building that promised to wrap us up in its wings and keep us safe. Ask Marion Crane about first impressions. Ah, that nice boy, Norman Bates. Oak cabinets flanked Dufferin's every corridor and wall. The best and brightest of Canada's wildlife entombed within. The thriving, threatened, and long gone. Buffed beaks and snouts snuffling up the glass. Eyes glazed, soulless, and unnervingly alert. Gallery upon gallery of feather, fur, claws, and cunning. Appetites wet for the buffet of grade school baby fat spread before them. I got the message damn quick, study hard, Work hard, or you are dead meat. Miss Proctor's take was less dramatic. This way, children, she said, let me tell you, you're in for quite the treat. And thus, our first great teacher began our indoctrination, as if my reservoir of fears required topping up. Eagles, hawks and falcons, loons and ducks, raccoons, weasels and ferrets, and overseeing the gutted lot, the owls. Their bloodless hearts pounded in cahoots and in my ears, their verdict against me unanimous, my complicity in their deaths rendered beyond a shadow of a doubt. In contrast, Miss Proctor was Cinderella preparing for the ball. Chirpy birds and merry mice is all she saw. The more messed up the display, the more exuberant our teacher's commentary. An owl sucking rat. An owl slurping frog. Do you know what I enjoy best about being a teacher here, boys and girls? Every day is a walk in the woods and I needn't step an inch outside to enjoy it. A wolf eviscerating Bambi, a lynx regurgitating Thumper. Miss Proctor clasped her hands, lowered her voice. I can't say if it's true for certain, but I have heard 
on excellent authority that Mother Nature herself attended Dufferin's school when she was little. Oh man, the crock she unloaded. Three floors later, basement level, and it's Bear Cubs the easy winner. We gathered by our classroom door as Miss Proctor gushed. Never forget how lucky you are to live in this wonderful community and to attend this wonderful school. What did I say, boys and girls? What kind of a walk can we enjoy every day? Rain or shine, sleet or snow. The halls reverberated with my classmates' joy. A walk in the woods, Miss Proctor. I lip synced my part as a fresh dose of dread shot through my skull. Was she kidding? Were these dopes blind? School was no refuge. The place was a dirtbag shy of graveyard. Had these people never seen a movie? Taxidermy never leads to anything good. And with that, I will say the end. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. And thank you, Ellen, for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you. I love that one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why you were so afraid of that. was amazing. Well, such a good reader, Fantastic. Oh, I was I said choking. I was choking up front. So I'm going to redo that privately, and you'll, you'll edit that all out. Well, it out. Yeah, no, that was that was really smooth. I enjoyed that a lot. Great, uh, Yeah, so we're gonna take a, a, a short five minute break. Um, by the way, uh, there's a scrolling link on the bottom of the screen. You can get your copy of Hollywood North. Um, that takes you to Amazon, but if you prefer another bookseller, you could just Google it, Michael Liebling, Hollywood North, and you can get it there. Um, I have a question, Michael. Yeah. Open Road's doing, doing it as both, a, a uh, print and ebook, and hopefully audio down the road. Excellent. It's really That's good. Awesome. Okay. All right. So we'll be back in, in five minutes with Elizabeth Hand. And I'm going to just mute everyone.
Uh, she might have just muted her screen. There she is. Uh, do you need another second? Liz? We can wait. Yeah, no, I'm here. I just stepped away. I, actually, I've got to close the window. Okay, no worries. It gets really stuffy here with all the windows closed, but I have to close them all to... Uh, Maintain radio silence. So, yeah. Conditioning or anything? I'm sorry. Air conditioning? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean they have their ceiling fans. Actually, you know, down here it's pretty comfortable. Upstairs, in one part of the uh, house, it gets hot, but there's actually really good airflow. I don't know if a lot of places here on Maui have air conditioning. Um, that was great, Michael. Well, I, that was really fantastic. I love all the pop culture, all the pop culture references, and leaving with the third oh. man, which is my favorite. Although movie. I do like the lady from Shanghai. Yeah, that's another one. That's a great one too. But I do, I, yeah, uh, I love Third Man. I'm trying to rip on it for the next book that I should be writing. Um, cool. So yeah, that was great. Okay, um, welcome back everybody. <clears throat> I'm Ellen Dantlow, the co-host, and um, it's lovely to have everyone back. Our next reader, our second reader, is Elizabeth Hand, who is the author of 16 multiple award-winning novels and collections of short fiction, including Curious Toys, Wilding Hall, and Generation Loss. The Book of Lamps and Banners, her fourth noir novel featuring punk provocateur and photographer Cass Neary, will be out this year. She divides her time between the main coast and North London, although she's currently reading from Hawaii. Welcome, Liz. Thank you, Ellen. And thank you, Mike, for that fabulous reading. Um, that was wonderful. Tough act to follow. So um, yes, I'm in Maui because my first grandchild was just born. So I came here to be with my daughter and her husband for the birth of baby Thea, Thea Elizabeth. So I'm going to read from the Book of Lambs and Banners. Um, I wanna give a quick shout out because my sisters, Barbara and Kathleen are there and my son, Tristan and my niece, Sean, and my, uh, my nephew, Sean, and my niece, Kara. And also Henry Wessels and his wife, MJ. And Henry actually inspired a character in this novel, uh, the character of Harold, who makes a brief appearance in one of the sections I'm gonna read from. So, hi, Henry. So anyway, this book uh, starts with Cass Neary in London. She is um, on the lam, as she always is. Um, and she meets up with, improbably, a somebody she knows, I can't really call him a friend, who is a rare book dealer, Griffin Hazelton, who was a character in the first novel, Generation Lost, although you don't need to have read that one to follow this. So she kind of tags along with Griffin because he is going to be cutting a big book deal and she doesn't have anything better to do, so she goes with him. <clears throat> so this is from the Book of Lamps and Banners and the reader, the narrator is Cass. We went to a place that Griffin knew, a mid-19th century pub called the Three Balls, now a gastro pub. Inside, the old drinking establishment looked as though it had spent six weeks at the Hazelden Clinic. I'd have preferred to dive, but once we were seated, Griffin handled the menu as though it were a copy of the Magna Carta. 
Oh, I hope they still have that pig's cheek with watermelon pickle. Oh yeah, here it is. What do you want? Single malt, something I can't get at home, a double. I mean to eat. I glanced at the menu. And Mr. McGregor's rabbit pie sounds nice. Griffin removed his overcoat and draped it on the back of his chair. When I kept on my leather jacket, he looked me up and down and made a face. The Ramones are dead, you know. Not Marky or CJ. Who's CJ? The emergency backup, Ramon. You getting me that drink? Griffin ordered my whiskey along with an expensive bottle of Pinot Noir. I raised an eyebrow. Your mother's library must have found a happy home in the Hamptons. So they talk a little bit about that. I savored my whiskey. Griffin waited until the waiter cheered, uh, filled his wine glass, then raised it to me. Cheers. Bottoms up. I finished the single malt and helped myself to the Pinot. I still think it's weird running into you like this. Hey, we were in one of the last indie bookstores on the planet. You used to work in the Strand. Soon that'll be the only one left. We'll all be fighting over the only surviving copy of Infinite Jest. It'll be left behind for bibliophiles. Very funny. I took a sip of my Pinot. You have another meeting tonight? I'm brokering a sale for a dealer I know in Hampstead. He finished his wine and refilled his glass. I'm celebrating. When this sale goes through, I'm done. Early retirement, new house in Monterey. Aren't you kind of young for that? Not that young, trust me. You look young, he grinned. Our food arrived. Griffin ordered a second bottle of wine and we tucked in. The rabbit pie was good. No, I was disappointed it didn't arrive on a Beatrix Potter plate. So uh, is your friend Caccio, is he really into all that occult stuff? Tarot cards and crystals? Don't know, maybe. But a lot of people are, especially now. That's how Watkins Bookstore stays in business. And my customer is into that too. Not Harold, he's the book dealer, but his client. She collects incunabula in volumes dealing with ancient magic, alchemy, astrology, the real deal. Vellum manuscripts, 15th century texts. He sipped his wine, leaned across the table, lowering his voice. Have you ever heard of a book called Picatrix? What is it? The most influential text on magic ever written. The most influential one known to exist anyway. It dates to the 10th or 11th century, but it was probably written much earlier, somewhere in the Middle East. The English translation of the title is The Goal of the Wise, but no one knew of an extant copy of an edition in the original Arabic until 1920. Sometime around, 1912, sometime around 1256, it was translated into Spanish, and a century or two after that, into Latin. What does it mean? Picatrix. No one really knows. Could be a transcription error or a translation error. Some scholars speculate the author was a man named Al-Majoriti. His first name can be roughly translated as to sting, which is similar to the medieval Latin word picare, which means to prick. There's a famous passage in Picatrix about treating a man for a scorpion sting with a tincture made of frankincense and the use of various talismanic seals. The book is filled with stuff like that. Whoever wrote it compiled this information from hundreds of other texts on magic, 
everything that was known in the ancient world. It's a cross between an encyclopedia and a user's manual for astrology, talismanic charms, spells, poisons, obscure methods of torture and healing, you name it. Some of its ideas were later incorporated into Gnosticism and the scientific method and alchemy. And it was one of the earliest and most notorious banned books. The Inquisition arrested Casanova for owning a copy. Griffin took another gulp of wine. His face had grown flushed, his strange eyes glowing with excitement. And I mean, he went on, there are really good reasons for this being a banned book. In one section, you get this detailed description of how you lure a man into a temple, then strip him and imprison him in a gigantic pot full of sesame oil up to his neck. You feed him nothing but dried figs, no water, and wave incense around him for 40 days. By then, he becomes as flexible as a candle. Nice. It gets better. After 40 days, you remove the head, hang it up, and wave around some more incense, and it talks to you, gives you information on the stock market, political uprisings, the arrival of Merton ships. It also reminds you of when you need to offer a sacrifice in the temple and answers any questions you might have. Oh, it's the prototype for Siri. Griffin laughed. Picatrix is full of stuff like that. So what, you have a copy of this book? No, better. The waiter came to clear our plates. Without asking me, Griffin ordered two Armagnacs. After the drinks arrived, he moved his chair around the table to sit beside me. I warmed my glass in my hands, eyeing him warily. Griffin's father had been a brilliant, deeply damaged photographer turned serial killer named Denny Ahern. I was starting to wonder if Griffin was following him into the deep end. In book three of Picatrix, there's a single reference to something called the Book of Lamps and Banners. It's an even more ancient and arcane work, rumored to have been written by Aristotle for his student, Alexander the Great. Aristotle supposedly illustrated it, and there were handwritten notes to Alexander as well, and references to other people Aristotle knew. Eudamus, Plato, you're kidding me. Griffin shook his head. So why haven't I ever heard of this? Why hasn't anyone ever heard of this book? because this sounds like Dan Brown on really good acid. Because no copy was known to exist. He reached down for his leather messenger bag and pulled it onto his lap. One hand rested protectively on the bag's handle. The other grasped his snifter of Armagnac. Until now, he said, and raised his glass to me. So I'm going to skip ahead just a tiny bit. And she asked him, how did he come by this book? A friend of mine who's a business journalist went to Baghdad a few years after 9-11. Back then, he was working for the Washington Post, but he visited the Bay Area a lot for work. That was when I still had a bookshop. He was a customer, not a dealer, but I'd find him things he wanted. Seminole novels, there's always one of those you haven't read. Anyway, he was in San Francisco and he dropped by the shop before he left. I think he was a little concerned he might not make it back from Baghdad. Did he? Oh yeah, he wasn't a war correspondent. 
He was covering the buildup there. Hazel Dean, that whole pack of jackals. It was after Hussein was killed, a little golden moment when it seemed like Iraq might rebound. He asked if there was anything he could bring back for me. Griffin remembers a book dealer. He was joking, but I told him that there is, was, a very famous book bazaar in Baghdad, Al Mutanabi Street. I've never been there, but I used to dream about it. All those volumes dating to the Ottoman Empire, rare Arabic books, hookahs and mint tea at the Shabandar Cafe. Ah, a pipe dream. So I told him to visit it on my behalf, and if he came across a first edition of the Arabian Nights, to bring it back for me. Griffin paused. That was a joke. Huh. Because an actual first edition of that doesn't, oh, never mind. But he did visit Al-Mudanabi Street, just wandering around since he had no idea what to look for. He thought it'd be good for his article, a little background, in and out of shops, browsing the books on tarps on the sidewalks, soaking up local color, all that. It's where Iraq's intelligentsia used to gather, scholars and book collectors, university students, tourists once upon a time. Late in the afternoon, he came upon a table heaped with books in front of a tiny storefront. He said it was about the size of a closet, books on shelves and stacked everywhere, nothing behind glass, old books, ancient books the kind of place you spend your whole life thinking you might stumble on, but you never do. I never do, only he did. He stared through the window, his expression distant. He started looking through the books. Some titles were in French or Greek, but nearly all were in Arabic, which of course he couldn't read, but he found a book about so big. He measured out a small rectangle. It was in black leather not in very good shape, dating maybe to the early 1800s. But when he opened it, he saw that what was inside was actually a much older book, handwritten in Greek and Arabic with beautiful little illustrations throughout, animals and plants and what looked like star charts. My friend thought it might have been a travel diary dating to the late Renaissance, so a somewhat valuable book, though mostly a curiosity. The shop's owner was out that day and his son was minding the shop. When my friend asked how much the book was, he said 75,000 dinars, about $60. A lot more than my friend wanted to pay for a souvenir for me. <laughs> so they bargained and he got the guy down to $50, which was still a lot of money for a souvenir. But my friend figured he'd get it back in goodwill and used book discounts, which he did. When he gave it to you, did you know what it was? I had no idea but was a very beautiful little book. And it was obviously older than my friend thought it was. I thanked him, gave him a really good deal on some very early semenons, and that was it. I figured I'd do some research on ancient Greek and Arabic text, texts and see what I could find out. That's well beyond my field of expertise, was anyway. But I knew a guy in the Arabic studies program at Berkeley. I scanned a few pages of the book into my laptop and asked him to look at them and translate them for me. I didn't tell him I actually owned the book. I said I'd found the pages online, and as a book dealer, I was curious. We met at Starbucks. He looked at the pages, and I'm not kidding you, his face went pale. Where did you get these? He asked. 
I said again that I'd found them online while I was researching something. Yes, but where online? I had to fudge that. I, I said I couldn't remember. I don't read Arabic, and it was a site somewhere in the Middle East. I think he knew I was lying. He said, this is from a book that doesn't exist. If it did exist, it would be priceless because it could change everything we know about ancient history. There is one reference to it in a volume by a Sufi scholar, a book titled Gayat al-Hakim. But this book, if it isn't some sort of hoax, is called The Book of Lamps and Banners. Are you sure you don't remember where you found it online? I had to beg off. I thanked him and said I had to get back to the shop to meet a customer. I've always felt bad about that. Uh, we fell out of touch and then I heard he died, some kind of freak accident. What about your friend, the journalist, the guy who found it for you? He's gone too. Griffin's expression darkened. He, he died in a car accident not long after. Someone rear-ended him on Rock Creek Parkway. He, he went into a tree. They said he must have been speeding, but he wasn't that guy. I've been in a car with him and he'd never go with him more than five miles above the limit. It used to drive me crazy. The guy who sold it to him, the son of the shop owner, he must have caught hell when the old man came back and found that book was gone. Griffin shrugged. He even knew what he had. Probably he didn't. In the 1800s, books were often rebound in Morocco or Caf, and few of those are ever valuable. But that shop's gone now. They're all gone. In 2007, a suicide bomber took the entire block out. Fundamentalists have destroyed every part of their culture. The archeological sites, the museums, university libraries. Why should we have thought they'd leave the used bookstores in peace? Al Mutanabi's coming back slowly, but it will never be the same. I stared at his battered messenger bag. Maybe I should head back to my hotel. Oh, for God's sake, don't be ridiculous. None of this is connected. Harold, that's the book dealer. Harold wouldn't touch this book if he thought there was anything unsavory about it. He's strictly above board. I thought you were strictly above board. I am. It's an antiquarian book, Cass, not the Ark of the Covenant. People thought that didn't exist either. And I'm gonna skip ahead and read one more very brief section. Um, oops, sorry, I skipped to the wrong place. Um, so this introduces Harold Vertigan, who is a slightly eccentric rare book dealer who lives in Hampstead, inspired by my friend, Henry Wessels. Hi, Henry. Although Henry is not this guy, but this guy has Henry's knowledge. So Henry has brought out champagne to celebrate the discovery and arrival in his bookshop, which is in his home of the Book of Lamps and Banners. <clears throat> Harold, sat, Harold sat staring at the small volume while Griffin paced unhappily by the French doors. I felt bad for Griffin. Who wants to stick around and watch some other guy fuck your old girlfriend? Or maybe he was nervous that Harold was going to find something wrong with the book and the deal would fall through. I refilled our champagne glasses and gave Griffin his. Bottoms up. I said. Griffin forced a smile. Cheers. Harold ignored his champagne. He placed the book on the low table in front of him. 
For almost a minute, he gazed at it, rubbing his chin. Finally, he reached into a pocket of his seersucker jacket and withdrew a pair of white cotton gloves. He pulled them on and undid the twine, gingerly grasped one leather board and opened the book. Reaching into another pocket, he withdrew a magnifying glass. He leaned over the volume, examining the end papers. Whoever rebound this did a very good job, he said. 2,000-year-old papyrus is tough to match. They must have found some in an Egyptian sarcophagus for the end papers and frontispiece. That's one thing the Victorians were good for, stealing things from other people and putting them to their own use. Griffin seemed to relax. That's what I thought, he said, and sat next to Harold. I squeezed in beside Griffin. So this belonged to a Victorian collector? Among others, replied Harold still peering through the magnifying lens, probably many, many others. If this is authentic, it would have been valuable even when it was first written. Aristotle and Alexander were rather well known in their own lifetimes. My guess is that it was in private hands after Aristotle's death, and then in a library, probably the library at Alexandria until Julius Caesar burned it down. So someone saved this one book? Harold shrugged. Many people have saved many books, though not enough of them. The library at Alexandria was burned more than once, by Romans, by Coptic Christians, by Muslims. This, he set down the magnifier to hold the volume in both hands, raising it toward us like an offering. This was probably passed down from one scholar to another or stolen from one by another for hundreds of years, thousands. At some point, it fell into the hands of a 19th century English antiquarian who took it upon himself to rebind it, thus the somber black Morocco. Harold stopped to eye my brimming champagne glass with mild dismay. Would you mind terribly? Oh, sorry. I downed my champagne and set the glass aside. So is it legit? Griffin winced. I waited for Harold's reply, but he had once again picked up the magnifying glass and was now poring over the cover. Eyes widening, he turned to Griffin. The binding's not Morocco. It's anthropodermic. Did you know that? Griffin shook his head. Jesus, no. Just as well. Bad enough you brought it into this into bad enough you brought this into the country in your hand luggage. I frowned. What's anthropodermic? Human skin, said Harold. It's not exactly common, but there are quite a few in private collections and university libraries. One or two medieval Bibles, and it seems to have been popular among anatomists going back to the 16th century. After the French Revolution, copies of the French Constitution were bound in the skins of aristocrats. Then there are the murderers. After they were hanged here in England, the cadavers of several convicted men were used to bind accounts of their trials. I pointed at the book. Any idea who that might be? Harold's mouth twisted into a wry smile. I'll leave the carbon dating and DNA tests to the final buyer. That might tell us more about how old it is. Some of your more gruesome Victorians went in for that kind of thing, like Richard Burton and his friends in the Cannibal Club. But this binding could be much, much older. He rested one gloved hand gently on the cover. This is a very advanced philosophical artifact. And I can guarantee you that some of the people who've owned it over the years 
knew exactly what it was. He turned several pages, all blank, before halting at what appeared to be a title sheet. Harold sucked his breath in and I felt my skin prickle. The page was biscuit colored, its deckled edges darker. It appeared thick and soft to the touch like heavy silk. Feathery Arabic calligraphy covered the page as well as Greek letters. At the top was a delicate rendering of hairs leaping over three scarlet candles. Seven circles of varying sizes and colors hung over the hair's long ears. Dull red and indigo, watery yellow, a lovely fresh violet. Be careful. Harold placed a hand on my arm. Without realizing it, I had bent my head to within inches of the page. I stared at him, then at Griffin, and knew that each of our astonished faces mirrored the others. Extraordinary, murmured Harold. These pages are parchment, not papyrus. It looks as they were bound into the original manuscript. They're in Arabic with Greek annotations, which might make this the oldest example of an illustrated text on top of everything else. Oh dear. A loose page protruded from between the others. Delicately, Henry pinched, pin <laughs> Harold pinched it between his fingers and gazed at it. I could see lines of text that resembled bird tracks, but no illustrations. What is it? Anxiety crept into Griffin's voice. Is it damaged? No, nothing like that, Harold replied with a reassuring look. It's part of the original Arabic text, I think. He turned the sheet to peruse the other side. Only these words weren't in Arabic or Greek, but English, Old English. I leaned closer so that I could read them. He that hath professed such desire as to see the devil must seek him here and no further. Good heavens, Henry murmured and scrutinized bird scratchings on the other side. These are runic. Runic? I think so. It looks like an early form of the writing used by some ancient Germanic tribes which is remarkable because the rest of this is an Arabic book. He turned back to the volume on the table, his brow fur furrowing. Yes, all the other pages in this book are illuminated, which means that this one has detached from bifolio bound elsewhere in the volume. Do you know what it says? I can make out a bit. I sold a fragment of a ninth century Bible once from Iceland one of the only examples we have of a biblical text transcribed in runes. He squinted at the leaf of the book. Angar's work, beware, this is power. I think the rest is some sort of farm formula, perhaps for metalworking, or maybe not. He touched one of the runes with a gloved finger. This doesn't look like ink, but blood. So a spell? Spectrographic analysis will sort that out. God knows they might even be able to run DNA tests on it. He sank back onto the couch, looking faintly shell-shocked. Do you know what this means? It establishes a link between the ancient Middle East and Mediterranean and the far north, centuries before anyone thought that existed. It's unbelievable. He turned to Griffin. This is it, he said, and reverently set the loose leaf back where he'd found it. The Book of Lamps and Banners. 
I would stake my life on it. So thank you. That's the book. <laughs> wow. and when's it gonna be? Uh, September twenty. September twenty ninth. So just over a month from now. <laughs> awesome. This is one I never read the manuscript. I'm sorry. I thought you know. I thought I read all your cast. I never read this one. Yeah, you I did. I mean, you know, usually I see your manuscripts. I never saw this. One. Oh, I did not. I did not. Obviously, I do not remember plot at all. I'm sure I did not. So I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> uh, Henry Wessels, wherever you are out there, so just they have your name in here by mistake instead of hot. <laughs> and at least one oh, point. No. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's fixed in the final copy of the book. It's not, it just makes it more valuable. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you want to start we got with a lot of now? We got a lot of We'll we'll start asking some questions and then we'll um, if you guys watching live uh, want to type some questions for our readers tonight um, into the live chat we will um, pick pick the best ones and ask them. Uh, so I'm going to start with a question for Michael. Uh, I assume from your book, are you a lifelong film buff, especially silent film? Is that yeah, um, I'll, I'll be honest. I like reading about silent films. I often don't have the patience for watching them. There's some that I've really liked. I think The Crowd, uh, Greed. Uh, there's a few comedies, the Buster Keaton stuff I really like. But um, I, I mean, I, I, as I say, I like reading about it. One of my favorite books is uh, Kevin Brownlow's uh, The Parade's Gone By, mm -hmm. in which he interviews people who acted in silent films, uh, uh, cinematographers, directors. And I read that when I was fairly young and it really got me hooked on this whole era. And I, I love the mystique about it. Um, it. It's For me, it's sort of like 50s TV as well. I, I sort of, there's a whole aura about it that fascinates me. And even for eras I never lived in, I feel nostalgic for them in a strange way that I would have liked to have been part of. There a word for that? I hear that a lot, like nostalgia for a time that you've never lived. There's got to be a yeah. word for that, right? Somebody should make it up. In fact, I think you could probably do it. I think there's a Japanese word for it, but I don't think there's one. Just, just uh, on a side note, I mean, mm. I am a huge movie buff, always was. Um, there's a, a restaurant in the novel called the Marquis Cafe, and I grew up in Trenton, Ontario. It was a small town. There were, I think, about 12,000 people living there when I was growing up, and my parents had this restaurant. And it was right next to the Odeon movie theater. And I got into the movies for free. And I went to the, the matinees every Saturday. And I got absolutely hooked on it there. Because even in the uh, 50s and early 60s, they would often show movies from the 30s and 40s at the matinees. So I got mm -hmm. to see all the serials, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly serials. Yeah. And um, so it just never left me. I mean, I, I just thrive on it. And if you saw my library here, it's full of uh, material about it. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth, I think you're muted. I wanted to ask you a question. Oh, there you go. Um, I have a question for you. So um, I wrote a book about um, like 
hidden lore, occult lore. And I'm curious about like your research um, into the into like the the texts that you put, you know, the books of lamps and banners and the other texts that you mentioned in the in the novel. Uh, are they real? And and how did you like tell us about some of the research for that? Yeah, they are real. Um, Picatrix exists. I, I came across it when I was researching Available Dark, one of the earlier um, Kastneri books, and I was researching Icelandic grimoires, and somehow or other, I came across Picatrix, which is not a grim, which is not an Icelandic grimoire, but it is a grimoire. And I read that, and there's this single reference in Picatrix, which is an, an Arabic book, um, to something called the Book of Lamps and Banners, and they just refer to it, 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 it this great book. And I, this was many years, maybe 15 years ago, maybe longer, I don't know, 11 years ago. Um, and I filed it away in my head. I was like, wow, that is a great title for a book. And um, then I, when I decided to make it part of, you know, part of um, the cast books, I did more research kind of into Incunabula and ancient manuscripts. I went to um, Henry Wessels again, introduced, provided an introduction to the medieval librarian specialist at the Wellcome Library in London. Uh, which is this fabulous um, library and collection that has this uh, just an amazing collection of stuff related to the history of medicine and science. And so she uh, let me go into their rare book room. And basically, you know, I, I was too embarrassed to come out and say, I really, I want to look at books of magic. And so she would say, well, what do you, what is it you want to look at? And I would say, well, you know, really old, books, and she said, well, books about, and I was like, and she said, alchemy, and I said, and old manuscripts, and she, she was, and she said, magic, and I was like, <laughs> so, because I just thought, you know, I didn't really know what I was looking for, but she was great, so she went, and she said, here you go, and she just brought out all of these amazing ancient manuscripts mm -hmm. and you actually you didn't accidentally open a portal to another dimension well i could have yeah. i may have because i thought i took all these photos on my phone and then i wasn't able to find them when i looked for them recently but but they were incredible and they didn't have any um you know i said do i need to wear gloves do i and she's like oh no here she just gave them to me there you so go. i was like oh my and these photographs and these books the alchem you know the, the alchemical books especially they're all really gruesome. They're photographs of like severed heads being boiled and dragons coming out of their nose. Illustrations, illustrations. Yeah, I've been to the welcome. I've seen the collections. Yeah, and they just have amazing things. But she also brought me out an anth a book with anthropodermic binding, which was a, a book bound in human skin. Did you touch it? Which was creepy. Yeah, <laughs> and and that was a little creepy. And I was like, nah. The only one, the only book I had to um, wear gloves for oddly enough, was a book that had been rebound in probably, you know, the 1800s and had guilt on it. And so they didn't want the gold to rub off. So anyway, I, I did as much research there as I could. And the rest, it was mostly online and getting, you know, getting books and then also just, you know, making shit up. <laughs> did you have to translate anything yourself? Uh, did I have? Only Swedish because the, the book takes a turn and, and uh, Cass and her, her lover Quinn 
go to Sweden because there's also this this whole thing which a, with a Swedish software designer who wants the book mm-hmm. for her own purposes and um, so yeah so I had I, I, all of my friends in Sweden helped me with translating Swedish. Gotta watch out for those Swedish software designers. <laughs> yeah exactly they're they're, they're very they're very unstable yeah. can't, can't yeah. depend on them. <laughs> well I have someone else um, we have a question combined with Bill Shun's question about Trenton Ontario. Um, your novel is set, yeah, right. But also, but the other thing about Trenton is have the people of the how the people of the town reacted, particularly with regards to some more negative descriptions of Trenton in the book. Yeah, I, I've I've read there twice uh, last June before the book came out, and um, in November, um, I was very very wary and. At the first reading, I, I purposely read some of the more negative parts, and I, I really expected a lot of <laughs> grumbling in that. But boy, I, I'm amazed they got it. I mean, they knew what I was doing, and all they need to walk is the main street of the town to see how this pretty little town, and it really did have this fire in 78 that destroyed half the downtown. I mean, it's, it was really kind of sad. But when they had the chance to rebuild with, with some kind of a stock, because there's a lot of beautiful towns up and down Highway 401 and Highway 2 that have really preserved the downtown and, and the core of the, these small villages. And Trenton just didn't care. I mean, they really did masturbate in plastic and aluminum and mortar. But the town, and, and there was, um, I remember as a kid, Going, I've gone back there almost every year since I left, which was a long time ago. I left when I was 14. I remember there was a hill we used to go sleigh riding down. And it was probably dangerous because it was right behind the Catholic Church, but the hill sloped right onto the railway tracks. But we would go down there and it didn't bother us. So I remember one of my visits back, I saw they had put up, and instead of something nice and in the flavor of the town, they put up this huge concrete barrier. Just made a beautiful little area kind of ugly. So I, I think the people are very aware that when the town has a chance to do something, if it's not sports related or related to the Air Force base, it tends to be an afterthought. I, I know there's a great museum in the town and they struggle to keep it going and it, it's begging basically for funds from the town to support it. Trenton, and I, I'm sorry for rambling on here, a lot of the things in Hollywood North, I didn't find out until long after I'd left. And it was, it, it seemed like all of these things were a secret and I won't get into them. But one of the biggest things was about this town on the shores of Lake Ontario. Um, from I think 1917 to 1934, they had a movie studio. And it was the first place in Canada to be called Hollywood North. And they had Broadway stars coming they had stars from the real Hollywood coming to Trenton. And in this town, they made the most expensive silent film in Canadian history at half a million dollars. Nobody growing up uttered a word about any of this. And today, there's not, they've only in recent years, 1992, after a woman, um, uh, Peggy Diamond Levy, wrote a book about Trenton's movie years. And about four years after that, they finally put up a monument to where the studio was. But before that, nobody recognized it or talked about it. And the, there's a, a mural in the town now 
near a fish and chips shop, which is great fish and chips, and also this wonderful Trentport Museum, which has tried to preserve as much of that as possible. But it's a, an ongoing struggle. And I think I've rambled on long enough with that answer. Does anyone have questions out there? More questions, people? Yeah, please type your questions in the live chat box. This isn't, Mike, this isn't a question, but Robert Levy says that we need a spinoff with the Colonel Killer and the emergency backup Ramon. <laughs> we'll we'll uh, communicate tomorrow morning. I was just say, let's have our agents talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Killer Colonel in Trenton was absolutely real. It uh, was just amazing that he, uh, I, I don't mention his name in the books. I don't want to give him any uh, publicity, but he, he really did pilot the, uh, Queen's plane and the prime ministers. He um, murdered two women who were part of the military on his base who were subordinates to him. He um, spent a lot of time sneaking around in cottage country, breaking into houses Jeez. and stealing various garments. And to make matters worse, his poor wife was president of the Canadian Red Cross. Oh my God. Do nothing. <laughs> about what was going on. You can't it, make that it, stuff It's a up. real amazing story. Did he kill more than those two women? Uh, I don't believe he killed more than the two women, but he apparently came close on occasion, and I think one managed to escape. Mm -hmm. But uh, what he was taking and breaking into these houses was pretty creepy, and he took photos of everything, and he also stole a lot of garments that mm -hmm. they would later find. Was that before or after he became a killer, you know? Uh, we don't really know, at least I don't know. Um, I think he was mixing it up as he went along. Because whatever I've ever seen on, you know, moving and TV, it's like a moving up, you know, the first, they may be stealing things and women's garments and then they move to killing. But that's me, yeah, I don't know. I could be the BTK killer a little bit, you know? reading about serial, but my latest novel, which isn't out or anything yet, it's, it's about serial killers and reading about that, uh, you, you tend not to sleep a lot at night, you know, when you, you get, you delve into it. Boy. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It, it, I remember researching, I think it was generation loss and, um, getting like an FBI forensics manual for dealing, you know, for how they handle investigations into serial killers. And I, uh, it was a PDF. It was not a, a book because if it had been a book, I would have like burned it, but it was just, it was too horrible. It was one of these things that I kind of, you know, after a certain amount of time, I thought, you know what? I just can't, uh, I, I don't need to know any more than this for what, for, for my own purposes. It's, you know, going back to Trenton, it's, it's, there's so many creepy little things that have happened there. That, that people weren't aware. I mean, bodies found. There's a, a mountain in the, in the middle of the town called Mount Pelion. It's 200 feet. It's the highest point for miles around. And 2007, a girl's body was found up there. Uh, uh, another girl's body was found near uh, uh, the Canadian, I think it was Max Milk or the Canadian equivalent of a 7-Eleven. And when you think about these things, and it, what gets to me about this, those are unsolved murders. You're walking down the street and the people you encounter, you don't know their backgrounds. I mean, I think I'm passing serial killer every second day. Well, before the pandemic, now I'm just indoors, and I think my wife's clean. So. Uh, by the way, I just want to say hello to people who said hello to me. I can't type in this, so that's why I'm, I'm not ignoring you. Hi, Mike Davis. I'm not, I'm not 
we only have one host who can actually post in that section. So yeah. that's why I'm not posting and saying hi back. I think it's better that you um, acknowledge them orally because if people are watching this in replay, they might not be watching the chat. So they might not see who's, who's right. okay. popping on. But uh, yes, hello. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, no new questions have popped up. So I'm going to ask. Yeah, go ahead and ask something. I'm going to ask. Um, uh, Liz, well, Liz, why don't you go first? Tell us what's next for you. Are you are you doing another Castaneri book or? or uh... um, I'm actually working on a, a standalone novel. Uh, my publisher want, wants me to kind of alternate, uh, so I'm doing um, a standalone no novel that I've been struggling with. You know, it's a COVID brain. It's just it's been very hard. Having you know the as I'm sure with everybody else the pandemic kind of I had to reboot so many things with this book as actually with the book of lamps and banners which I was pretty much all not all the way through it but close to um, getting through it in 2016 and then the election happened and I was like holy shit I've got to go back and it, well first Brexit and then the election the American election and and so it completely changed the landscape of the novel which was supposed to be taking place like now. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, so now, and then, you know, the same thing is happening now with this, this new book, which is a psychological thriller about a, a woman who, um, in, uh, in college, two of her best friends die and she finds out 20 years later that the circumstances were, are very different from what she thought they were. And so she goes to try to figure out what happened. So it starts out, it's almost like a little bit of the, the secret history or, or my own book, Waking the Moon. And then it takes a jump and uh, to, to now to the present day and sort of a post-pandemic um, period where she gets involved with, you know, crazy preppers and, well, actually not, you know, actually sensible preppers and, and Trump supporters, but sensible Trump supporters <laughs> in, North, in Northern New England. <laughs> And she formed some, she formed some, some unlikely alliances to try to figure out, you know, what's been going on. So um, uh, anyway, so it's involved, you know, some having to do some unusual research into that. What about you, Michael? What's well, next? I just uh, finished a novel recently, which is in my uh, agent's hands, Chris Cohen, who is on here somewhere. It's uh, called The... Uh, the serial killer's son takes a wife. Um, okay. It's typically dark and funny at the same time, and uh, I'll leave it at that. And uh, I've got a, um, my latest short story is in Asimov's, the issue that just came out yesterday. Mm -hmm. It's uh, called uh, Robin in Her Shiny Blue Coffin. Mm. And I, I just wanted to interject and, and mention Sheila Williams here for a second, because um, when I wrote Hollywood North, excuse to show it here, but I, um, I, I'm, I, I'm a sort of a hybrid when I write, they tend to cross a lot of, a lot of genres. And I didn't know what it was until Sheila told me you've written a fantasy noir. So I just want to thank her for defining what I have written. And from now on, I'm going to send her everything I, I write just so she can tell me what I've written. <laughs> well, Liz wrote a really, really quickly. She wrote something for me, which is very out of, out of uh, have habit, <laughs> a short story for an anthology I'm working on. And it was like, wow, I can't believe you did it fast. I, yeah, and I, I wrote I wrote another 
story quickly this year as well. Uh, that's in the current issue of Conjunctions. And I actually have another oh, story. Like, oh yeah, I really like the one in Conjunctions a lot. Thank you. Yeah, that was something I found that the pandemic was good for was writing short fiction. I have another story that I'm hope to be starting on soon. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know, maybe it's something about the, the kind of focus needed um, or the kind of hope in the future needed <laughs> for writing a novel as opposed to writing something short form. So this is not really a writing question, but um, so, Lani Deanna asks, yeah. I'm not exactly born in Trenton. Do you think it may have impacted the trajectory of my life? <laughs> oh boy, oh boy, yeah. Dina. Uh, I hope I, I, one of us needs to lie on a couch for that answer, right. uh, Dina. The other one will sit in a chair with a notepad. Um, yeah, very let's much try, so. Let's try to keep the questions about, about writing and, and the author, please. Just, uh, just side note, I've had a, a flurry of email. One of the probably the best part about writing this book and, and getting it sold and that was the number of people I haven't heard from literally in decades, kids I went to school with. There's Charlie Lunn is on here. She provided a, a photo to me of, um, we were in a piggyback race in grade six and, and she's on my back, which she gave to me at the fir first Trenton reading. Um, but I've been getting a, um, a flurry of email from Trentonians in the last three weeks, oddly enough, because I've been getting them all along with just all of a sudden a whole bunch. And um, one, one of them just told me a story of how my, my late sister, Lanny Dina's mother, met the man she ultimately married and was a story I'd never heard. And I will send it to you, Dina. I don't think I sent it to you. Just wanted to say that. Um, any questions for each other? Uh, yeah, actually, so Michael, this is sort of, uh, again, sort of a sidebar movie I have because uh, a question somebody had asked earlier in the comments stream and they said Citizen Kane or Third Man. I, I say Third Man. What about you? Yeah, me too for the zither music alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Joseph Cotton. I mean, I love Joseph Cotton. Uh, and, I, and also Wells's entrance in that. I mean, he always made a great entrance, yeah. but I just love his entrance in that movie. He's in the doorway yeah. and there's on the street and the cobblestones and all of us. And the cat. I love that movie. Yeah, actually, the book I'm working on now is a riff, kind of a riff on the third man. I should have said oh, that. The one that has the um, the MAGA prepper who ends up becoming kind of an ally. But uh, yeah, it sort of takes certain elements of it are, are taken from the third man. So I just, uh, it is such a great movie. I watched it again oh, earlier this year. I, I can watch anything by Wells. I really can, just, just going on there. But you touched on something earlier that uh, I found interesting in talking about the uh, MAGA and all of that and, and the, the pandemic. Uh, and, and I think I, it, it came to me, it dawned on me. I mean, it, it was so obvious, but I saw a post by Stephen King and it was about, you can't write a book now that's set in, in modern times without addressing the pandemic. It's impossible. And yeah. even in the last thing I wrote, uh, it, you know, it comes up to 2020, and I certainly addressed it in there, it just as it's setting forth. So, it, it, I mean, it's changed. Has there ever been anything else? I, well, I guess the Great Wars, I mean, you had to have addressed them. Yeah, in your and I, I know. Yeah, I think it's, 
and I think just too, just because of the way the publishing industry works or worked, um, you're able to to get things in more quickly than perhaps you know 40 or 50 or 30 years ago. I know I, with actually with the Book of Lamps and Banners, because it was you know it was uh, in copy editing, and I was able to get in references to the pandemic because all of the all of the cast books so that their backdrop is is this whole sort of slow apocalypse from generation loss to this book it's just that everything is sort of collapsing in each of the books um so i was able to get a few um a few references to the pandemic starting then because i i was actually in london uh left london i'd been there for six weeks early in the year and left there two days before the lockdown and arrived back in the U.S. and it was just, you know, surreal. And here we are six months later, and it's and we don't know when it's going to end. You know, and it, it, it's I, I think a lot of writers, um, you know, grappling with, with not just the pandemic but with with Black Lives Matter and uh, the Me Too movement, the current political situation. I mean, it's just there's so much going on that the reality is constantly jumping the shark. And for those of us who write um, any kind of genre fiction, anything that's just non-mimetic domestic fiction, I think you have to make a nod of one sort or another to that, you know? And, and I think when, with some novelists, it's been really, you know, I know people, it's been uh, really problematical for them because they, you know, they've had to kind of start from, from zero when when stuff they were working on, reality just completely overtook yeah. it. Yeah. 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 We have no idea what's gonna be happening in the next year or two. No. I know, Not I've got my daughter, spot. I don't know when I'll see her next. Margie, uh, who's on here, I mean, it's very frustrating. We haven't seen them since February. When will we yeah. see them? Yeah, I know, but I mean, it is it, it is illusory in a way because we we do always think that we know what's going to happen next, and I think one of the things the pandemic has done, on top of what the past you know almost four years have done uh, earlier, if you're including Brexit, is that I think it's sort of you know there's this great line from a poem by Auden uh, that goes, "Your dream of safety must disappear." He yeah. was writing about World War II, but I think it. Um, it applies here, you know, we sort of were living with this, you know, believing there was this vast safety net and realizing that no, it's not there. And it's not, it, it's not been there all along for, for people of color or, you know, uh, for queer people, for, for you know, people e economically disenfranchised, for, for immigrants. So I think it's been a big um, and much deserved heads, you know, heads up that people have to be aware that, no, we don't know what's, not only do we no, don't know what's going to happen next, we haven't been aware a lot of what's been going on this whole time. Yeah. And I, this is a big reminder of, of that for, for a lot of us or for all of us. Definitely. In our lifetimes, this amount of turmoil, I, I never remember. I remember the, you know, the riots in the sixties and all of that, the Berlin wall falling when you, when you thought that we were entering a golden age, you know, of peace on earth. But also that was shocking. I mean, no one, I mean, most lay people didn't think the Berlin Wall was going to fall as quickly as it did. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. and look of course, at where we are now. Soviet collapsed, and now it's still as Putin, you know, yeah. trying to be an authoritarian, authoritarian again. But yeah, I mean, there are all these things that come that you just don't expect happening, and they have happened over time, and we have to adjust not only personally but creatively. 
um, 9-11. I mean, Luke was saying how it influenced writing in the beginning yeah. of the century. You know, these things that have to be addressed. Yeah. I mean, I think as what you were saying, Liz, it's like, you know, there's, I think what you were saying is that there's so much change happening so quickly. And, and a lot of it is awareness of things that are going on. Mm -hmm. But I also think that it's just every day there's a new catastrophe. Yeah. And I think as creative people, mm -hmm. you know, that we, you know, the way, the way I work is like a lot of the stuff that I do is more subconscious. So it's like I absorb it all in and then it comes out through my, through my work. And then it's like, but if there's so much change happening so fast, it's like, I don't have time to absorb that moment before there's new information and it can be very overwhelming. So it's, it's been, it's been interesting. Interesting. The key is to write historical fiction and forget the present. Oh, sorry. No, I was just saying, I, I agree with, with what Matt was saying 100%. And, you know, writers, artists of all kinds are, are have always sort of, you know, served as the, the canaries in the coal mine. And, you know, what happens with the canaries in the coal mine, of course, is that the bad stuff, the you know, that they the oxygen goes and that they uh, die. And they die. <laughs> and yeah. I think that, you know, uh, that what's happening now is that it's it's very difficult for artists, all kinds of artists and creatives to grapple with so many of these things, as you were saying, Matt, you know, every day, something new um, to uh, to try to figure out where, you know, where can I do some good? What, what can I do to help? How can I take this and write about it or compose about it or paint it or, or whatever? I mean, we could also look to artists also for, you know, visionary ideas on how to approach this and, you know, constructive societies and ways out of the chaos. You know, um, I think um, I, I saw recently a friend of mine posted on Facebook that, uh, you know, agent, his agent in particular said that they were getting way too many dystopian stories and they, they wanted something else. And you know, um, I, I've been saying this for years. I often have panels at cons and I'm just like, we've got, you know, I love my dystopias, but we need to balance that with other alternate positive visions of the future just to give people ideas of what's possible. You know, you don't know if, if it's like, if you don't expect it, you're not going to get it. Right. So it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, I don't know. I, th I think that we're definitely going to see a lot of really great art come out of this, but it may take a while for people to sort of uh, digest it. Yeah. Yeah. Max Kearney has a question, Mike. Oh. Wait a minute. Yeah, a good question. Wait a minute. Vaughn has a question first. Oh, oh I didn't see Vaughn. Hold on, Max. we'll come back to you, Max. Where's Vaughn? Right above that, Bloody Will. Oh, yeah. Oh, before. Sorry. Yeah, that's a good question, uh, Vaughn. Um, One would like to know who your f least favorite character in HN is. You know, I, I can't think of one character I really dislike in the entire book. Uh, I mean, maybe the principal, Principal Mel Basic. I mean, you had to read the book. Um, it, it, that's one question I got a lot from Trentonians. They keep quizzing me to see, hey, is this person based on this person? Because, you know, it's a small town. They knew every... And of course, I, my only reply is, uh, 
it's strictly a coincidence, any resemblance between uh, people living or dead, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I, I suppose the principle of the school Mount basic is the only character I'm not keen on, but everyone else I love, the good, uh, the bad, and the middle of the road. I love them all. I, here's a question for you, Liz and, and, and Matt. When you're finished, it can be a short story for me or a novel. I really go into depression because I mourn my characters after I've left them. I feel, I miss them. Does that happen to you or am I a little bit nuts? No, it's happened to me. I, I When I finished um, a draft of, of a novel I had been working on, I was like, you know, in the in the Roadrunner cartoons when the Roadrunner is like running off the cliff and then realizes, oh, wait, there's nothing underneath me and falls. Like, that's what it felt like. Like, because the novel had occupied like my thoughts for a year. And then when it was done, I was like, holy shit, what do I do? And it took me a while to just kind of recenter and find what my next. And I realized I'm like, oh, I need to be working on a project all the time. Like, if I'm not, then I just I spiral. What well, about you? As a reader, I mean, as a reader, that happens too. If you get totally involved in a book and you really, really love the characters, you're bereft when you have to leave, when it's over, which is so why some people don't want to finish a book, you know, if they're really intensely involved in it. Yeah, or they really want the author to write the next one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if I, I, I think I'm like you, Matt. I, I kind of go into a spiral. I need to be working on something or else it's very tough for me to you know, probably deal with reality. Um, with the cast novels, because it's a series, I've been able to keep reconnecting with the characters there. So, I, and I've been doing that for such a long time. I don't know what it would be like if, if you know, I did stop working on that series. But with other books, yeah, I feel, I can feel really sad when I get to the end. Um, but also, I can feel kind of relieved. Um, <laughs> But, but I do, like Ellen said, I, I often find myself really feeling kind of lost when I finish reading a book that I love and then it's, it's over. And I'm like, oh my God, that's, you know. What happens next? What happens to these characters? I love them. Yeah. Um, Sally Rooney's Normal People, um, which I have to confess, I didn't, I haven't read the book yet. I'm going to, my daughter has it. She's read the book and she loved it. But um, uh, I thought the series was just so beautifully done. Um, and now I want to read the book, which I'm glad that I can to kind of, you know, sometimes you see a movie or a series and then the actual book is disappointing. I mean, that happened with Dexter. I mean, I loved the, the TV series. And then I tried to read Dexter Dream Darkly Dreaming, the first book, and I hated it. You know, hmm. I didn't hate it, but I did not like it. It was not as good as the series. And then the rest... You know, I read one or two of the books. It's like, nope. Yeah. So that happens too. So I hope you're not disappointed. <laughs> uh, normal people, uh, Liz. It, it was interesting. So I read it, and then we watched the series after. And it, I don't remember ever seeing a series or a film that was so faithful to the book. In fact, it made it boring watching the series because it was so. <laughs> one that Liz was talking about. Normal people. Uh, normal people. Okay, I haven't heard of it. We have a question from Max Kearney. Is not being able to be out and see it making research harder? Either of you, take it. Yeah. Mike? Not really. Um, I've got a huge library here to begin with, and we have the internet. Um, yeah, I, 
for what I've been researching, it was pretty easy to access what I needed. I'm not sure if uh, had this happened before uh, Liz was in London and that it would have been quite as easy for her. I, yeah, I find the research part, I do so much of it online or with, you know, I have a, a pretty extensive library of, of you know, carbon-based media that I can also use. But for me, I have to be in a place to write about it. And so that is kind of hard. Um, you know, the book I'm presently working on is set, part of it is set in Portland, Maine, um, you know, 20 odd years ago. And then the present day part is set in um, part of uh, northern Vermont which are both places that I know well and can also still go to. So that's good. If I was having to write a book now set in a place where I had never been, it would be really tough. I, I you know, because sometimes I do that. I will set out to write something set in a place that maybe I've been briefly, like here, you know, on, on Maui. Um, and I would not feel confident writing about it until I had spent enough time to really get to know it. And I think that's um, I think that's impacted a lot of artists who are accustomed to um, you know we've spoiled all of us with the freedom of you know cheap, relatively cheap air travel and other kinds of travel uh, and and we can't do that. But fortunately, you know the interwebs are great with that, and, and Google Maps is a, a great tool. Yeah. Um, this. Is going to put everyone on the spot. Melinda Ray Allen asks, "Can y'all pitch some ideas for non-dystopian stories, just for fun? It'd be so nice to see you brainstorm that." Go, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw one out there. An AI that is not evil. Can, can we have a story where AIs are actually beneficial? Yes. Uh, there's, there's, there's plenty of that, I know, but, but we see it's like a common trope, like the evil AI. I'm just tired of that. Um, what about you guys? I don't know. I, I wouldn't mind uh, seeing something where uh, JFK was never killed, Martin Luther King was never killed, Bobby Kennedy was never killed. I and just see how the uh, world might have progressed, what would have changed. I mean, you would hope it would be for the better, but uh, somehow from what I see, after Obama, which was such a high, and I'm sorry if I'm talking against anyone's politics here, but those are the breaks. It was such a high seeing him elected. And as a Canadian, and I'm sorry, Americans watching, and I don't want to get too deep into politics, but to go from Obama to this, I'll never get it. Okay, the end of the politics. Your turn, Liz. Michael, I just want yeah. to there's a whole series of alternate futures where I'm sure all of those things happened or didn't yeah. happen. Well, oh, Barry, Barry Maltzberg did lots of Kennedy stuff. Yeah. 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 About these people surviving. Yeah. Um, well, Watchmen is about um, Robert Redford became becoming president, but it, but it, you know, and things still go wrong. Oh, and Bill Gibson's um, agency. In that one, I think Hillary becomes president, but still things go pear shaped. Yeah, you can't e explain that without spoiling the book. But yes. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I don't know. I, I don't. I everything I've always written. Everything I've written has always been pretty dark. So I don't know that I would be yeah, able to. I, I just don't know that I would be able to do it. I have some students who, um, yeah, I teach at uh, an MFA program and also have taught at you know the various clarions and a lot of younger writers whose works I've read um, are writing more utopian 
stories and books, you know, things sort of hope punk and, and things that are fueled by a much more utopian um, dynamic. And I think they're great. I mean, they, you know, the works that I've read, uh, are, are, some of them are really terrific. It's not something that I feel that I would be really good at. I don't know how I, especially right now, you know, maybe after the election, talk to me and then I'll have lots of utopian ideas, I hope, but. Um, yeah, I see, I, you know, I, I'm always, I don't like to use the word utopia because I think people either, either they say like the, the common answer is like one person's utopia, someone else's dystopia. And then also like the, the other answer you get is there's no such thing as a perfect society, right? But I, I always say that like a utopia is a verb, not a noun. It's something you work towards. It's not something that just is. And I think that you can find a lot of creative space in working towards a better future. I mean, at sure. least yeah, I, 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 I hate the word utopia because I think it's been misused so much. Right. I mean, right. I, yes, working for an optimistic, a positive future is important, but to call it to wait to looking for a utopia is like, nah, I don't want a utopia. I yeah. want it better. Yes. But utopia right. is like, and just as toxic as dystopia, I think. It's like you know, the kid getting tortured under the city, right? The, the ones who walk away from all yeah, and, well, and Nora's uh, response to that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, that's a great yeah. story. Yeah. yeah. You um, know, Delaney's uh, Trouble on Triton, which the subtitle is, is An Ambiguous Heterotopia. And I think heterotopia is a, a term that works. I think. Um, you know, certainly some of Delaney's work, uh, Dahlgren and, and Triton, um, and um, John Crowley's Engine Summer, is, uh, which is not, you know, it's neither dystopian. Be utopia? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I read it a long time. I loved it, but I don't remember it being. Yeah. So, hi. Yeah. I'm saying hi to Sarah May. Hi, Sarah May. <laughs> um, any, any more questions? Because we're coming up almost on two. Actually, we've, we've been broadcasting over two hours, but we're... Uh, about 10 to 9 p.m. here in New York. Questions, people, one or two, come on. We've got one last question before, before, before we, we sign off. <laughs> um, well, I just want to say that um, I thought both readings were fantastic. They were absolutely great. Yeah, you guys are both really good readers. And um, just yeah, you hooked me, Elizabeth. I really want to uh, start reading more of your stuff. Well, likewise, Mike. This was wonderful. It was great to, you know, to, to all. I, like I said, all, I loved all the pop culture stuff, and also Matt, your own work, and and Ellen, all of your editorial work. It's just a, that's one of the things that I think keeps me going and and hopeful for the future is is just you know reading reading work by all of you here and some people in the audience as well, and and uh, and knowing that you're working on it, that everybody's still doing it. Liz, look at my comment, my private chat thing. I have a note for you. <laughs> yes, I saw that note. She didn't, though. I yeah. know. Okay. All right. Well, um, I don't see any new questions coming in. So um, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thanks to everybody who uh, tuned in uh, live. And uh, this is YouTube. So the video will be up for people to watch later. So thanks to all. Uh, all of you who um, support the series uh, and have supported the series, um, just one quick reminder. Thanks to Kinky Bar. Donate. Yeah, if you, if you can donate a couple of bucks to the bar, 
keep it going because you know everything's closed now in in New York City, and you know bars won't be open. Yeah. No, they're not going to be open for a while. Just keep them alive. Um, so hopefully that, you know, when this is all over and one day it will be all over that we could all go back there and meet in person. Uh, we're, we're looking forward to that. So, um, yes, thank you all so much. Uh, this was awesome. This was fun. Um, always love doing this. Uh, any last words before we sign off? Just thank, thank you all. This was wonderful. Thank you, everybody, for coming, and, and Matt and Ellen for arranging it, and, and Michael for, for being here. Thank you. I mean, this, was, this was a lot of fun. Yep. Really enjoyed it. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm going to end the broadcast. So have a good night, everyone. We'll all see right. you next time. Bye bye. bye, -bye.